We're turning back to Romans again today. We're garnering truths out of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. And for today, I want to begin discussing chapter 8. The title for today is going to be The Law of the Spirit of Life in Christ Jesus. Now, we saw in Romans chapter 6 the finality of the finished work of Jesus Christ and we saw that we are joined to him, planted into him, baptized into Jesus Christ and his finished work. And if there's a theme of Romans 6, it is the finality of all that Jesus has done, indeed the finality of what he is and who he is in us. Last week we talked about Romans 7. And we saw there that there are going to be challenges to our faith having to do with the finality of the work of Christ in each one of us. And the primary truth that we needed to establish last week and that we need to repeat here again for this week is that in each believer there is a separation between soul and spirit. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, he joins us to himself and makes us one with himself in spirit. That's how we're planted into Christ. That's how we're baptized into Christ by that one spirit, as the Bible says. That's how Christ dwells in the believer. We are joined to the Lord and made one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17 Now, Everything inside that spiritual union is new life in Christ. Everything inside that spiritual union with Christ is Christ and is of God. But outside of that spiritual union with Christ is our physical body and what the Bible calls our natural man or our suke man, soul man. These are not joined to the Lord in this age. They remain outside of that spiritual union. God wants the spiritual union. He wants Christ to come to govern those. But in this age, our body and our soul, our natural man, in other words, will never be saved. Not in this age. Never be joined to the Lord. And so each believer has those two dimensions. The new man in Christ, the new creature in Christ Jesus, which is the spiritual union of our spirit with Jesus. We have that dimension and we have the dimension that in this age will remain natural and outside of that spiritual union. Now, that accounts for a lot of what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, where despite the fact that he is able to say, oh wretched man that I am, despite the fact that he is able to say, I can't do what I want and I keep doing what I don't want, Despite the fact that he is able to say, in my flesh dwells no good thing, despite all of that, nevertheless, his union, and of course ours, our salvation, and as, as well Paul's, all of that is secure, perfect, and finalized in Jesus Christ, in that spiritual union with him, and yet outside of that union, there is no good in man. And I stated last week, and we, we do need to get this, that if we don't understand the separation of soul and spirit in each believer, in ourselves, if we don't see that and understand how that's working, we're going to have a great deal of trouble grasping what happens to us as believers. In fact, if we don't understand that, there is a possibility that the enemy could use our ignorance on that matter to deceive us. For example, haven't you always wondered why, if you're saved, why, if you're set free from sin? Well, then if that's true, then why do you continue to behave the way you do badly? Why do you continue to do what you don't want to do, and why are you unable to do what you want to do if you're saved? if you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul talked about that. He said that of himself. He says, I can't do what I want to do. And I do do that which is evil at times. I don't want to, but I do. 
And he says, but nevertheless, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. And there is no contradiction here because I'm joined to the Lord and made one spirit with him. And that's where all the good is. And all the good is from out of Christ. But outside of that spiritual union remains me in my flesh and natural man. And there's no good there. And the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh. And so these possibilities are not only possible, they're normal. It's normal for your flesh not to behave the way you want it to. It's normal for you to have the conflicts that Paul said he had in Romans chapter 7. I mentioned last week that there's a lot of people that think Romans chapter 7 refers to Paul before his conversion. My answer to that is you have to be under the worst sort of delusion in the world not to be able, as a believer, to identify with Paul in Romans 7 and to recognize that in this age you will be joined to the Lord in one spirit with him, but you will never be joined and made one body. Sinless perfection in this age is absolutely impossible, and God knows it. But it doesn't matter because our faith is to be in him. We're to leave ourselves alone and not fuss over ourselves, but go on with God. Now, he's going to talk about a lot of this today, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. So let's begin reading here in Romans chapter 8. He says there that, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ, who walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, before I go on here, just a couple of things I want to say. There are people that teach that there is no condemnation for them which are in Christ, as long as you walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. And what they're saying is that if you happen to walk after the flesh, then there is condemnation. Well, if that's true, then there is condemnation, period, isn't there? And this verse is a lie. This verse is saying there is never any time any condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, even when we sin. If it's saying that there's no condemnation except when we sin, then what's the point? What's the point? Then we're all condemned because you and I sin every day. No, it is saying there's never any condemnation for them which are in Christ, even when we sin. And then he says, in a way of describing those who are in Christ, idealistically, not perfectly, but the general description, he's saying those who are in Christ do not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be, but sometimes we do walk after the flesh and not after the Spirit. Paul didn't always do things perfectly. He told us so in Romans 7. And so what are we to say, that one slip up and we're condemned? No, we are forever forgiven. And I've covered that ground in this series. We are as thoroughly forgiven for all sin as Jesus is done dying for all sin. And that's about as total and complete as you can get. If you're ever under condemnation as a believer, as a born-again believer... If that were possible, then you would not be in Christ. You would not be saved. Again, you are joined to the Lord in one spirit with him. Nothing can change that or subtract from it or add to it. It is final and finished forever. If you're born again, you can't be unborn again, to put it another way. Now, there are thousands and thousands of people in the church today that deny the truth of eternal security. That's not going to be subject matter for today. But once you do that, you have, in essence, denied the finality and finished work of Christ that made your salvation final. Well, this is what it says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore no, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now then he says, 
for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now let's talk a little bit about the words in this verse 2 here in Romans 8. When we think of the word law, of course we begin to think of a code of do's and don'ts. And often, law does mean that. But in the New Testament, there are other meanings that the word law can, can refer to. And so is the case here. For example, the word law, and it means this here, means the nature of. It means the characteristics of, the operations of. Just like we in our English language talk about the law of gravity, or the law of inertia, or the law of physics. That's not a code of do's and don'ts. That's a, that's a nature of things, isn't it? Gravity operates a certain way. That is its nature. We get to choose whether we are going to honor that and go along with it. If you don't want to go along with the law of gravity, well, you're not going to last long, are you? And that's the sense in which the word law here is, is used. For the law, or the nature of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, in other words, this, what, this is what the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is and does by its very nature in existence. It's made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, what's the law? What are these laws in, in contrast? We have two laws here. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus very simply is Christ as our life. Jesus Christ dwells in us, or like I said before, we are joined to him. And we are made one with him in his life by the spirit of God. Paul says Christ is our life, Colossians 3, 4. Jesus said, I am the life. There's only one life, and it's a person. And if we are joined to him, we are alive. That's how we're saved. We're joined to life himself. And what Paul is saying here is that the very nature of the person who is life himself, the very effect and impact of that, the law of it sets me free from the law of sin and death. Now, what is the law of sin and death? What's the law or the nature of the Adam creation, the Adam race? Now, that's all pointed out and exposed by the codified law, the Ten Commandments and so forth. So you could lump the two together, certainly. Because like Paul says, I wouldn't know what sin was unless the law had told me. So yes, the law, the written law, does identify everything that's wrong with the Adam race. But the law of sin and death, strictly speaking, is how the Adam race is and operates. And so what we're being told here is that Christ in us as our life is life, is a power, if I can put it that way, it's a person, that by its very nature makes me or sets me free from the nature of sin and death. Now, as I noted earlier, we've got both of these within. We've got life in Christ within our spiritual union with him, but outside of that union is that which operates in the law of sin and death. And so our challenge is to live in and out from Christ, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, to walk according to the spirit, in other words, to walk according to Christ. But all the while, our flesh is going to try to pull us in another direction, and of course Satan will be there to try to use that as a tool to undo us. But it is the law, it is the nature, it is Christ in us, in other words, his resurrection life that has made us free from the law of sin and death, that has made us free from sin itself, as we read in Romans 6. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. I want to talk about what we usually think sets us free from the law of sin and death, 
And then I want to contrast that over and against what really does. And we, we did talk about this, I believe, last week a little bit. But here in chapter 8, Paul gets into it much more extensively. You and I usually think that the way in which we get set free from sin is as follows. We think that God turns on us and acts upon us and does something to us by his Spirit that changes our old man in Adam so that we can now obey. And that's all through Christian teaching. Oh Lord, give me the power to obey you. You never find that in the Bible. Oh Lord, you know, make me to be somebody that can do this or do that. You don't find that either. In fact, what you do find in the Bible is yet not I, but Christ. Galatians 2.20. And so there's something wrong with this. It's error to think that Christian fruit, Christian growth, Christian character, that the experience of the life of Jesus Christ is a matter of God by his Spirit acting upon us and changing who we are in Adam over from the sinner that we were to somebody that can obey him, and that God somehow goes zap, if I can say it that way, and empowers the old man in Adam, that which is outside of our union with Christ, empowers that old man in Adam and gives him the power and ability to obey and to do stuff, to serve and so forth. Now, not only is that error, but it is in a very disguised and hidden way. The gospel of Satan. It is Antichrist. Anytime you hear a message which in any way, shape, or form salvages the old man in Adam and, and says that God does something to that old man in Adam to prop him up and present him as the new man, as a Christian, you are hearing or reading the Gospel of Antichrist. Remember when Peter announced to the disciples in Matthew 16 that he had to go to Jerusalem to the cross. How Peter stood up and said, far be it from you. What did Jesus say to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. And that's when he launched into that teaching that whoever would come after him must lose their life must lose all that they are in Adam if they are to find true life in Christ. What's he saying there, and how does that apply to this? What he is saying there is that the entirety of the Adam race, that old nature in you and I, is under the cross. God is not going to fix it, not going to repair it, not going to do something to it to make it pretty, God is not going to empower our old nature. God is not going to, as some teach, bring out our greatness, bring out our good points. God is not going to find, because there is none, a spark of life or truth in us and blow on it and fan on it and bring our humanity, our natural man, out into its full potential. No, everything that you are in Adam is done. It has been baptized into the death of Jesus. Now, there's still a lot to be worked out as far as experiential. But it's a done deal. In Adam, all die. God has never said and never given the Adam race any destiny or any purpose except that of death in his son. We have got to get that. Therefore, a Christian is not somebody that God has acted upon so that I can now behave and make my Adam, natural man, behave. No, a Christian is somebody whose Adam, race man, is hidden 
in the death of Christ. And what emerges is not the Adam race fixed up, not a repair job on the Adam race. What emerges is Christ in us, living through us, the new man. So just to get real practical and down-to-earth language about this, when you and I are born from above, God Almighty does not subtract sin from us and eradicate it from our being. When you and I are born from above, sin does not die, does not cease to exist. God doesn't subtract sin. He doesn't subtract the old man in Adam from our being. Have you recognized that despite being born again, the old man in Adam is still there? Why do we think we have all these troubles? Why do you think Romans 7 is here? No, God doesn't so much subtract from our being, sin or the old man in Adam. What he does is add to us Christ and raise us up out of that old man in Adam and unite us in spirit with Christ so that we are dead to the old man in Adam. Old man in Adam isn't dead in this age. We're dead to him. We're dead to sin and alive to God, as the Bible says. We're dead to sin, but raised up in spiritual union with Christ. Now, the way that operates from a practical standpoint is that we pick up our cross daily and allow God to do whatever it takes to prove that that old man has no power over us. And the flip side of that is that we learn Christ and learn how to abide in him and live out from him. Now, a lot of us get tripped up on this point, and we spend a lot of time lamenting over the fact that we still sin. We lament over the fact that the old man is still there and so forth. And our whole focus becomes a Christianity, really, of trying to die to self. Oh, I've got to die to self. I've got to deny myself. Almost like giving up candy for Lent, the way the Catholic Church used to do. And it all becomes this campaign to purge self out of self. How many understand you can't purge yourself out of yourself? Or to put it another way, and I forget who said this. I read it someplace decades ago. The person said that it's impossible for you and I to crucify ourselves because we always will need one hand free to pound the nails, and so we won't finish the job. You and I can't crucify ourselves. You and I can't go on a campaign to eradicate ourself from ourself. All you and I can do is exactly what Jesus said. Deny yourself by giving yourself unconditionally to him. Or like I always say, tell God to do whatever it takes to bring you into the reality of what it means to lose yourself to Jesus Christ and to find him as your life. You can do that. You can, because you possess yourself, relinquish that. And that's all God says you can do. And then you've got to go along with him when he begins to bring the work of the cross. So you don't need to lament and go, woe is me, I still have a self. What we need to do is put that in the hands of Christ and leave it there, leave ourselves alone, quit fussing over ourselves, quit trying to fix ourselves, quit trying to make ourselves into the specimen we want to be, because it's all part of the same self and same sin. We've got to leave ourselves alone and we got to live in and out from Christ as our life. That's not going to result in a life of license or sin. I would submit that the more that we continue to fuss with ourselves, the more we are showing that we still own ourselves. We're still trying to fix it. God says leave it alone because it's dead. What do you do with the dead body? 
Do you try to prop it up, make it smell good, make it behave? No, what you got to do is you got to confess it's dead and go on. And part of what surrender to Christ means is that you're going to let him do whatever it takes to make you to understand how that works. And the focus is not so much going to be, how can I get free from self? That's going to be included. But the focus is going to be, how can I know Jesus? How can I walk with Jesus? All this business about picking up your cross daily and about losing yourself to Christ and and dying to self, all of that business isn't a thing unto itself. All of it is unto the end that we find Christ as our life. And if we're not finding him, we need to ask God to show us why. The cross, while it is painful and difficult, and it always will be and will never be totally free of the work of the cross, the cross is only a means under the greater end that we would live in and out from the Christ who dwells in us and with whom we are one in spirit. That's why there's a cross. The cross is the instrument of freedom. The cross is an instrument in the hands of the law of the Spirit of Christ Jesus that helps set us free from the law of sin and death. And so instead of saying that God acts upon us to turn us into a good Christian or to fix or repair our old man in Adam, we need to understand that God will never do that. God has raised us up and out from that old man in Adam made us one with his Son, and now Christ is our life. And if that's happening, and it's real, then we're going to be made free from the law of sin and death. You'll notice, too, that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's not saying that the Ten Commandments has set us free from the law of sin and death as righteous as those commandments are. Because again, there's a lot of people that think that the way that you get free from sin is by obeying law. The point is you can't. So you're not going to get free from sin by obeying law. You can't obey law. That's the point. The more you try to obey the law, the more you're going to be exposed as a sinner. Now God's purpose in that would be to get you to your knees and say, by thy grace, O God, He wants to get us to the place where we see that Jesus Christ as our life is all that there is. Christ in us is the only hope of glory. And the rest of this is dead for a reason. It's because there wasn't any way to salvage it. It was just that bad. God didn't arbitrarily decide that the old man in Adam was going to die and he was going to make a new creation. It was all he could do given the corruption and the point of total evil that the Adam race had fallen into. So he was done. And he makes a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so we're dead to all of that and raised up with Christ as our life. And we're to live from out of Christ as our life by faith. That sets us free from the law of sin and death, from the nature of the old creation and from all the law codified law that points it out. Now notice what he says in verse 3 here. For what the law could not do. Now notice that. People, again, teach the law can do this. He's saying the law can't do this. He's saying for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. In other words, all the law in the world can't empower you and I to obey. It'll show us we can't. There's only one way to be able to have any chance of obeying God, and that's to give all that up, lose your life, and live from out of Christ. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of law 
of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, verse 4 there, it says that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us. How is it fulfilled in us? By the very presence and resurrection life of Jesus Christ in us. Way back when I started this series, four or five weeks ago, we talked about justification by faith. That's simply what verse 4 is referring to. In other words, if the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us, then we are justified by faith. If it's fulfilled in us through faith in Christ. And we are justified by faith because if we put our faith in Christ, God, yes, does legally impute to us the righteousness of Christ, but he literally imparts to us Christ himself with whom we are one in spirit. And Christ in us is our righteousness. It's the only one that exists. There is no other righteousness in creation except that which is found in the person, Jesus Christ. And if you're one with him in spirit, then he is your righteousness. And if you're not one with him in spirit, you can obey laws until you are blue in the face and you will never be righteous. In fact, your desire to make yourself righteous is going to make you all the more greater, a sinner and one who walks in self-righteousness and unbelief. Now, Paul now, starting in verse 5, begins to describe people who are, in fact, coming into a realization of Jesus Christ and are learning to live in and out from Christ as their life. Now, that's what the Bible calls walking in the Spirit. The Bible calls walking in the Spirit living by faith in and out from Christ. The Bible does not restrict walking in the Spirit to feelings, leadings, signs and wonders like people have made it mean nowadays. That's very little uh, having to do with walking in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means to live in and out from Christ as our life, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now to walk in the flesh, or according to the flesh, means to walk in and out from that old man and Adam that's not within that union, or to put it another way, to walk in the flesh means to live in and out from me, myself. When the Bible uses that word, the flesh, it's talking about the me principle, the self principle. And without Christ within, that's all we can do, live according to self. We will see everything according to self, respond to everything according to self, do everything according to self. Our entire perception will be governed by the colored glasses, if I can put it that way, of self. And isn't that the way natural man operates? Including many supposed believers. It's all what they want, what they see, what they know, what they feel. Christ has nothing to do with it. They're walking according to the flesh according to the self. This is something else. To walk according to the Spirit, like I said, is to live by faith in and out from Christ. And it's to be governed by a growing knowledge and realization of Him as He lives in us. Now let's go on and we'll see this. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh, do set their heart and mind, in other words, their motivation on the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, that's what they do according to the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. How many understand that there are thousands and thousands of professing believers today who absolutely are carnally minded, but are so deceived they think they're spiritually minded. One way that that's evidenced is when people operate as if God's on their side. I've heard people say, God's going to bless everything my hand touches. Do we understand what a deception that is? 
God's not going to bless everything our hand touches. He's going to bless everything his hand touches. And hopefully we can be with him in it. Reminds me of when the angel appeared to Joshua before they entered the promised land there in the book of Joshua. And Joshua said to him, are you on our side or are you on the side of our adversaries? And that angel said, well, I'm not on anybody's side. I am on God's side and his representative. The question is, whose side are you on, Joshua? And that's really the truth in this matter. So carnally minded means to be governed by the external circumstances, situations, all in the spirit of me to try to sort things out and to walk, even try to walk with God in the flesh. And of course, so much of Christianity today, the organized Christianity, is nothing but carnal Christianity. It's according to the flesh. Even some of the religious aspects of it are. Today, a church is an organization like a corporation. And what the average lay person doesn't see behind the scenes with all the boards and all the governances and all the different regulations is that most churches aren't any different than a corporation except they act different on Sunday morning. And a lot of the efforts that the churches make, like fundraising, even plugging in such nonsense as tithing, it's all a matter of natural man, carnally minded, trying to do whatever they think will work. How many understand there isn't even such a vocabulary when it comes to Jesus Christ? It's not about what will work, what will get people coming to church. It's about preaching Christ and let God take care of the rest. Well, the carnal mind in verse 7 is enmity against God. I mean, that's in light of the fact that a lot of supposed believers have a carnal mind, a pretty shocking statement. And you can probably, if you're half awake, recognize in yourself that very often you're, you'll start thinking in natural carnal terms and it will, it will rub against the Spirit of God. It'll be contrary to that. To be carnally minded doesn't mean to have a dirty mind. To be carnally minded means that you think in terms of the material and, and this life and the atom life and the self. And it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. Can we understand that? Again, you can put all the laws you want on the Adam creature, but it, it, the Adam creature cannot obey God. And he says, so then they who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're still fussing with yourself, trying to make yourself behave, trying to make your emotions, your temperament, trying to make your merely outward uh, man behave. You're going to find out, if you're honest, that you can't. But he's saying in verse 9, but you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. This is talking about being spiritually one with Christ. A lot of people try to say that to be in the spirit is some otherworldly trance-like state where you get visions and leadings and all kinds of experiences, that stuff by and large in the church today is from the psychic realm, from the soul realm. It's not of the Spirit of God at all. The fruits prove it. No, to be in the Spirit means to be in what the Spirit is doing, and Jesus expressly said in John chapters 14 and 15 and 16 that the entire purpose for which God gave the Spirit was to reveal Christ, glorify Christ, testify to Christ, guide us into all the truth of Christ. The Spirit of God was given so that we might know Christ and realize Him. And that's what it means to be in the Spirit before it means anything else. But of course today, that's the last thing that being in the Spirit is now uh, meant to mean. And other things have taken precedent. No, the Spirit of God is here to bring you and I into a, a living realization of Jesus Christ. And through Him, 
into the purposes of God for this age and the next. Now, here in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9 and reading down through verse 11, we see something that is very valuable and edifying to take note of. We're going to see in these three verses the fact that within the believer there is not two indwellings. We're going to see that there aren't two experiences that a believer must receive. But we're going to see that in fact that Jesus Christ dwells in the believer by the means of the Spirit of God. We're going to see that when we were saved and joined to the Lord, we were baptized with the Holy Spirit into Jesus. There's one baptism, not two, three, four. There's one baptism with the Holy Spirit, and it's the one all of us receive when we're saved. We're baptized into Christ, and included in that are all the possibilities of the gifts and the fruits and so forth. There is not salvation and then a subsequent experience. That's a false teaching. And these verses will pin down the truth that Christ in us and the Spirit of God in us are exactly the same reality. Now, as I read these verses, note that there are five or six different ways in which Paul describes the very same reality of Christ in us by the Spirit. He says, starting in verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So that's number one. The Spirit of God dwell in you. He then says, Now if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So now we've got two terms referring to the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. How many understand that's not two different spirits? That's the same Holy Spirit. And so it's described as the Spirit of God, and it's also described as the Spirit of Christ. Same Spirit. So let me read that again, and then we'll read verse 10. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his... Now, verse 10, and if Christ be in you, so how many see that he is clearly saying that the Spirit of God dwelling in us and having the Spirit of Christ in us is absolutely synonymous with Christ in you. And so again, one indwelling Jesus Christ by the means of the Spirit of God. Now he says, and this is an important verse, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So there again we have the contrast between our spiritual union with Christ, that is life, and righteousness. But that over and against that which is outside of that spiritual union that yes continues to exist but in biblical terms is dead spiritually. Sometimes it can be confusion for younger Christians to read some of these verses and terminology because it'll say dead and we'll think it means ceases to exist. No. It just means it doesn't have the life of Christ. But it does continue to exist. Now let's go on here. He says, If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. So there's another way of saying it. The Spirit of God. If that's the case, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. 
Now, when he says it will also quicken your mortal body, I think that there is sort of a multifaceted meaning here. Certainly it could mean that because of Christ in us, God could heal us physically. God heals today. He doesn't do it in exchange for writing a check to a ministry, but he does it if it suits him to do it, and if it's for our benefit, and it's, if, it's for our, if it's best for us. But I also think that there's an application that if Christ is in you, you will have a greater awareness, a greater willingness, and a greater ability out from Christ to do that which is necessary through the physical body, tasks and work and so forth. This gets back to something I said earlier. People pray that God would give them power to obey. He never will. People pray that God will give them power to do this or do that. He never will. What God will do is give us Christ, who is the power of God. And then as we step aside and allow Christ to live in and through us, well, he'll be the power. And we'll be an aside. Again, yet not I, but Christ. Now, that's how God quickens our mortal bodies. He doesn't bypass us if he wants to live through us, does he? We don't sit there in a trance while he does stuff. No, he works and lives through us, inclusive through our mortal body, our hands, our feet, whatever we need to use. But because we're one with him and surrendered to him and don't have our own interest in mind and want only his will, then Christ, who is the power of God, will be able to quicken our mortal body so that we can do what he would do. How many understand if you're a member of the body of Christ, then what you ought to be doing is what he would do if he were physically here. And all of that is part of what the meaning is here, that, that he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal body by the Spirit that dwells in you. You'll be doing whatever Jesus would be doing by the Spirit. And I'm not talking at this point about miracles and things. I'm talking about living life in whatever you find yourself and he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. We used to be, but we're not anymore. We don't have to follow the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. This word mortify is an interesting word that is easily passed over in our Christian teaching. In the Greek, it means to destroy by neglect. Think about that. How many see that that is telling us to leave ourselves alone? And it's telling us that we can do that because what we're leaving alone, God has left alone in death. Again, he's not fixing it. Leave alone that which is dead. Live in Christ. And what will come true if we do that is what Paul says in Galatians. Walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You're never going to stop fulfilling the lusts of the flesh by fighting it. Because you're out of kilter with the truth in that case. You are dead to that. You're not a debtor to the flesh. Leave it alone and get into business living in and out from Christ and His life by faith. And you'll find out that that which God says is dead really is. And you will mortify by destroying, by neglect. How many understand if you stop trying to prop up a dead body, if you stop trying to breathe life into a dead body and make it behave, if you mortify that and leave it alone, what's it going to do? It's going to fall down and, and be what it is, dead. It's going to prove to be dead because it is dead. And we've got the cross of Jesus Christ on that as a promise. And so he says to leave it alone and focus on living in and out from Christ. Now, in this context of everything we've read here in Romans 8 so far, 
we come to verse 14, which is another verse that is widely misunderstood. This verse is taken out of context. It says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And people have made this to mean that, in, that if you are a son of God, you're going to go around in life constantly being led and told what to do. Go over here. Don't go over there. Buy a red dress, not a blue one. Marry this person. Don't marry that one. You know, God led me to do this. God led me to do that. And I'm not putting that down. And God can lead. He does lead. But so much of this is operated in and out from natural man. You can get ideas in your head, and it's because you want them to be true that you'll think God is talking to you. Or, in a negative sense, you can be so afraid that something might happen that you can get it in your head that God's telling you it will. All of that's natural man. It's the carnal mind. And so, this is not talking about being led in the sense of being given marching orders or direction by God. Although, as I said, God could do that if it pleases him. Now, what it's talking about when it uses the word led, the Greek word means govern. For as many as are governed by the Spirit of God. Governed how? Governed in the way that we've just read all through Romans 8. Living by faith in and out of Jesus as our life and growing to know him. That's what we're to be governed by. If you want to talk about leadings, the primary way in which God leads people today is through an inward realization of his Son. You know Christ, you're going to know what his will is. And yes, God can add to that various indications and, and, and various uh, discernments of his Spirit, sure. But we're not talking here simply about getting directions to do things. We're talking about having our whole being governed. How many see what a shallow Christianity it would be if all that it consisted of was God telling us what to do here and there? No. God does tell us what to do plenty. But Christianity is a matter of living in and out from Jesus as our life in communion with him growing to know him and come into a realization of him and being set free thereby from the law of sin and death. And so he says very clearly, for as many as are governed by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now I'm going to stop right there for today and we'll get to the rest of chapter 8 or try to next time. But for today, we again need to understand that this phrase, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's talking about the reality and the nature of Jesus Christ in us. The impact that he has and who he is. We are to live by faith in and out from Christ as our life in a growing to know him and if we don't know how to make that happen, again, hand yourself over to God and tell him to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And that's a prayer that God will answer.